Welcome to Breaking Brave. I'm your host, Marilyn Barefoot. My guest today is Stephen Matthew Clark. Stephen is the creator of the Awakening Program, an inmate collaboration to transform self, community, and the system of mass incarceration. Through this program and the online platform, Stephen and other incarcerated individuals are able to connect with organizations and people who are working to create meaningful change in the criminal justice system. Stephen designed the Awakening Program to address the overwhelming need for healing in the American prison system. He's a graduate student of positive psychology and is just about to start his PhD program in a couple of weeks. Using principles of positive psychology, Stephen created a curriculum that can be taught and learned via mentor relationships, enabling incarcerated men and women to awaken, serve, and transform themselves, as well as the prison system. Please welcome Stephen Matthew Clark. I am so excited to welcome my guest today. His name is Stephen Matthew Clark. And Stephen and I actually met through a great friend and colleague of mine and his, Billy Anderson, uh, on LinkedIn, actually. God bless the power of LinkedIn. So welcome to Breaking Brave. Stephen, I'm so thrilled to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Actually, an honor and a privilege. Thank you. We do have, and I'm I'm very proud to say because we've been at this for a couple of years now. We do have a global audience all around the world now, and and I'd love you to just put this conversation into context for our audience. Who are you? Where'd you grow up? What's your story? So that we can jump off from there, so everybody has an understanding of the base. Let's just start there, if we could. All right. Well, my name is Stephen Matthew Clark. I am a person that's currently working on my PhD degree, and I met Miss Marilyn Barefoot through, uh, like she said, our friend Billy Anderson, who is a very dear friend of mine, who I've had some very deep, vulnerable conversations with about what it means to be a man. Uh, The last 18 years, I have been incarcerated in a maximum security prison here in the United States. And for those past 18 years, I have diligently worked to understand myself better. I've diligently worked to understand the choices that brought me to prison. And I've also worked diligently to atone for the choices that brought me here. In doing so, there has been a lot of self-exploration through spiritual practices and through education. I would say both have been instrumental in my transformation and where I am today in my life. And it's actually fascinating. July 10th, I'll be the first person, this is what I'm being told, in the United States to start a PhD program from a maximum security prison. So that's pretty intriguing. Okay, I have no, I I barely got out of university, but a PhD full stop, a PhD from an incarcerated status. That's amazing. And congratulations. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate the congratulations. I, I really didn't understand the weight of it till my um, the dean of the school that I will be attending um, had a conversation with me about it and it kind of registered. It's like, holy Moses, this is a 
really fantastic opportunity to show other incarcerated uh, residents and experiencers what's possible. And this is also a really great opportunity to show the broader society that we are better than the worst choice that we've ever made. And we are redeemable if there's the right opportunities provided to us. And I just want to say quickly that if it wasn't for the leadership here at the Maine State Prison, Commissioner Randy Liberty, Warden Matthew Magnuson, I wouldn't be where I'm at today. I wouldn't be doing this show. I'm in my prison cell right now doing this show with you over Zoom, which is intriguing. So I'm grateful to be under such progressive leaders in the field of corrections. And I think what that's done, it's really opened a lot of doors. I know when I finished my um, second bachelor's degree a few years back at my graduation, they had in the visiting room because it was through a local university. I had said to the audience that I'm going to earn my master's degree and a PhD. And I know a few people even chuckled because there was no such program at the time. But it really goes to uh, manifesting a belief in ourselves and manifesting what we believe is possible and just following through and, and going to any lengths to get those things and that thing done that we are really passionate about doing. And for me, it was up leveling my consciousness more um, through education just to get an opportunity, an invitation for me to know me better. And I think that's really, for me, that's where a lot of the transformation has taken place, that inner work, that shadow work, yeah. Stephen, thanks to you and thanks to your community that you've started, and I want to get into that in a second. In the last two weeks of participating in the awakening. We're going to come back to that so that everybody can understand what that is and what that's doing and why you created it. I have learned so much. And I guess I am representative of the average person walking around out there who has absolutely no concept of what it's like inside a maximum security prison. And I don't necessarily mean that as day-to-day -day life. I mean that as, I was listening to another podcast, don't remember the man's name, but it was this morning before we started this interview, and, and, and it was about Omaha, Nebraska, and how some of the people inside the prison system are given tablets. But the tablets you can use to play Candy Crush <laughs> but you cannot use these tablets for any educational purposes. And that it just, it struck home to me that when people are incarcerated, put in the prison system, they're thrown away. Yeah, I mean, that's, oh, I'm chuckling a little bit. Goodness gracious. We have 2.3 million people incarcerated, more per capita than anywhere in the world. And essentially, you're absolutely right. What we're doing is... We're warehousing people, and it's for, it's all in the name of money. It really, really is. I'm, the more I'm learning, the more I understand. The more I understand, the more it freaks me out. So we have these astronomical sentences. We throw people into prison, and I would say for the past at least, I don't know, 50 years, we've had around a 77% recidivism rate, which means 7 out of 10 people that get released come back. It's really eight out of 10. The question becomes why? 
if any one of our major highways had a 70 to 80% fatality rate, don't you think they would shut the highway down to look what was going on wrong? Of course they would. Of course. Of course. Unfortunately, the prison industrial complex feeds off the recidivism, the people coming back. They need people coming in to fill the space in order for them to make their profit. And the system is set up and has been set up in a very punitive and draconian way for a long period of time. That started with the Puritans when they would lock somebody in a room by themselves, give them a Bible, and that was it. That was their redemption. They were supposed to find themselves by finding God with a Bible in a cell, no human connection, no love, no nothing. Find it, do it, be it, and that is it. And now we have these systems in place that these systems in place are, they perpetuate not only criminality, but they perpetuate a traumatic mindset that's fueled by fear, anger, and lack of knowledge. So what I'm seeing is Maine, for example, there's there's a, um, a psychologist, criminologist back in the day, I think it was 1776, his name is Cesare Bezzacari. And Cesare Bezzacari coined positive criminology, and positive criminology is art, education, yoga, mindfulness, uh, music, all these different things that um, Howard Gardner had talked about in the seven intelligences that really get the brain going. One of the seven things that really prompt us to get our creativity going, because we know now the science is showing us the opposite of reactivity to get out of that vagus nerve and to get out of the sympathetic response system. We need creativity. The brain starts firing differently. We move out of the survival part of our brain up into the prefrontal cortex where we have to think both emotionally and intellectually. So when we have creative opportunities for people who are in prison, there's more of a chance they get out of that stress response to fight, flight, or freeze. And they start finding themselves. They start finding what they're good at. They start finding opportunities. However, the way the system has been set up for a long period of time is it perpetuates violence or perpetuates um, trauma. You know, the, the majority of people in prison have dealt with seven out of 10 adverse childhood experiences, which is a test anybody can look up. And primarily it's questions like, was one of your parents incarcerated? Was one of your parents physically abusive? Did one of your parents deal with mental health issues? Was one or two of your parents, um, did they commit bodily harm on each other? Did they abuse you? Were you sexually abused? Um, there's 10 questions. So seven out of 10 is the average for a person. I've worked with about 1,500 people here, and the median score is about seven every single time I do this exercise. What I'm finding is because of that trauma and the poor conditioning, the subconscious programming that somebody has gone through, primarily they run into and come into an environment that is really exasperating those same kind of behaviors and that same kind of mindset. You have a prison guard that comes in and his job is painful and challenging and hard, and he's exposed to all this stuff that he was never exposed to in the past. And 
Next thing you know, you have a, a recipe for disaster and a recipe for failure because now you have folks that are coming in, they, they have that poor conditioning. Then the environment sets up little cliques or gangs. Unfortunately, that's a nature of the beast in prisons because the gangs are what move the drugs or the gambling or the profit for the most part. And with that becomes more violence and a bigger spiral. And what I've seen at the main state prison, the only thing I can speak to is my experience and what I've read for research. But my experience is this was a very violent place when I got here 18 years ago. A lot of people carried what they call shanks or homemade prison knives that they'd make up out of things from a toothbrush to a piece of fence to melted down plastic. So people were carrying these shanks around and there was a lot of violence. There's a we have to walk to Chow, and it's probably about a I'd say a 500 yard walk up a sidewalk outside, and they used to call the sidewalk the Bloody Mile, and that's because there was so many assaults happening every day, and there was blood on the mile. They call it the mile, um, and yeah, it was quite an interesting place when I first arrived in that kind of that theme of Shawshank Redemption when Andy Dufresne went into prison and he got raped by the sisters and he went through that brutal, brutal attack. That's really what I had envisioned prison was prior to coming into prison. That is the narrative that they perpetuate for a lot of people. So a lot of people are coming in with that kind of mindset and it's fear. Yeah, We are, we're jilt, jilted with fear, right? Uh I can't even imagine. Terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. This is real. Okay, so tell me now then, Stephen, has the main state prison where you are, has it changed? You've been there 18 years. I mean, when you said when you first came in, there was a lot of shanks and violence and things going on. Is is it different now? I'd love to say thanks to you. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to say that I'm, I'm a contributing factor to it, for sure. I've been... Uh, I'm absolutely and positively like to think of myself as a contributing factor, but I would say it's the leadership. Like any organization out there, you need to have powerful and meaningful leadership in order for changes to take place. Um, I'm a big fan of Ken Wilber's, and I'm a big fan of the four quadrants of consciousness now. And the the question always becomes to me is how do we get from the upper left-hand corner of I, the quadrant of I, our values, beliefs, what's within us, and how do we translate that down into the right, bottom right-hand corner, which is the we or the systems that are in place, the it's. A really big part of it was our education program. Uh, Miss Doris Buffett, Warren Buffett, the billionaire's sister came into the main state prison and befriended Deb Meehan, who is a administration administrator at the local university university of maine augusta so they formulated a friendship and brought a education program in here to the prisons you had men that started changing and uplifting their consciousness which was a huge factor and what has happened recently is that college program has expanded it started with like eight of us we we're handwriting our papers back in the day to more than 90 people involved with college right now the second chance Pell Grants came back in the United States, which opened the door for more and more people. At the time, Miss Doris Buffett provided us scholarships through the Sunshine Lady Foundation. 
And I would say the shift has been from, you know, rather than people carrying the shanks, now they're carrying computer bags. Rather than violence happening all the time, there's more talk about philosophy or psychology or these other issues. Now, don't get me wrong, this is still accessible for negativity. It's all around. In fact, they've coined what's called blue chair chatter because the chairs in prison are blue. And what we say is they're participating in blue chair chatter, which is the talk on politics or just the, the mindlessness talk that people engage in. What I'm seeing more and more of is these conversations come into the surface that are more in tune with like goals, dreams, visions. And that's what we teach. I mean, we have an awakening online exchange, as you know, that you've attended, but I've also created an awakening um, coaching program here at the prison. And for the past 15 years now, I've been facilitating classes, um, everything from recovery peer support group to four agreements, Don Miguel Ruiz's book. I take people through that. I take people through positive mindset. Now um, with a master's degree in positive psychology, I do a lot with mindfulness and I do a lot with appreciative inquiry right in the prison setting. And just giving people and allowing people that space to really grow, to be seen, heard, and felt. Something they never had even as a kid. And yeah. And I, I'm not sure. Are you from, Have you read um, by chance The Biology of Belief? No, I have not. I'll send you my copy if you'd like me to. I would love that. But no, I have not, Stephen. I have not read that book. Well, that that's written by a friend of mine now, Dr. Bruce Lipton. And in that book, Dr. Bruce Lipton talks about environment and how strong the environment is on our mindset. But he also talks about our minds, 95% of what comes out of our mouths, 95% of our reactions, our responses, 95% of our thoughts derive from subconscious programming. Things we heard, things we watched, things we um, listened to, things we read, things that have been programmed into us. So 95% of our brain is taken up by this subconscious program, whereas 5% of our brain is this consciousness, yeah. Yeah. this pure flow of just consciousness now with chat gpt that might have gone down a little bit more yeah yeah <laughs> i hear you i i am i am so curious to understand for, we're going to come to the awakening because i want you to talk a lot about about that Stephen. but in your in your situation how how are you perceived how is this perceived is this welcomed by people inside the main state prison? Or are you, I mean, I got to ask the question, are you targeted? And this is this, this guy, this is guy spewing BS that I don't understand and I don't want any part of. Is it very, there's a bunch of people who love you for what you're doing and really embrace it. And then maybe a bunch of people who say, I'm really comfortable with the negative cesspool talk and I'm not going there with Steven. That's okay. I mean, you're absolutely, you, you hit that head on. I mean, that's, that's life. You, you go into, I'm sure if I walked into your neighborhood, there'd be a bunch of people that really loved you and, and appreciated you. And there'd probably be a few that had a few choice words for you. Oh, that's just definitely. That's, 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 the world we, that's the world we live in. Um, yep. yep. I, I, I think, I think for the most part, this is a really interesting dynamic. I'm learning more and more and more about it. Um, 
I think the more, you know, I always utilize the metaphor, the, uh, the story of Plato's allegory of a cave. Plato's allegory of a cave um, in the Republic, there's a bunch of people, they're all locked down and shackled, and they're looking at the wall, and there's shadows on the wall. And what those shadows were and are of behind them is a fire, and then between the fire and between the wall and the people is somebody making um, puppets or making shadows on the wall. And the people are watching these shadows and they believe these shadows are real. They believe it's a real thing. And they're just amused by these shadows and they're paying attention and following them. And one of these prisoners realized, he's like, holy Moses, I'm not even shackled here. I can take these things off. He turns around, sees the fire. He's like, what have I been looking at this whole time? What is going on? Really? He starts exploring, moving around. Next thing you know, he makes it up out of the tunnel, finds light, sees the light, sees his reflection and gains a certain level of enlightenment. Well, in Plato's allegory of a cave, he goes back down in the cave and his brethren aren't happy. They're not uplifted. They're not inspired. They end up killing him. And I think that's an important story for enlightenment or any, uh, any, any environment, any leader, any person that has any sense of awakening. When somebody has a sense of awakening, people are scared to death of that. So you'll have a lot of people that are interested. It, it it intrigues them. You're going to have people wherever you are that try. Taylor Swift said it best. She said people throw rocks at things that shine. That's the truth. So the reality here is, you know, you or me, I've achieved a certain level of enlightenment. I try to go down and share that with other men at the prison. It's perceived really great by a lot of men. Other men, I mean, this is kind of like a, a grown-up high school. In many ways, the gossip's horrible. The testosterone is through the roof. You have um, a lot of toxic masculinity. You have a lot of challenges. So what I try to do with people I work with is just provide a safe space where people are seen, heard, and felt. I try to meet people where they're at. I try to love and respect everybody's narrative. Um, it doesn't matter if I'm working with somebody in the capacity of sponsorship, mentorship, coaching, um, or just an ear or tutor, you know, I try to meet that same person with loving kindness all the time. And I think my lessons that I've been learning is I have to accept, I'm just, I just have to accept the environment for what it is. It's like, if I want too much or I expect too much, I'm going to end up just putting the shackles back on my feet and looking at the wall. Yeah. And all the wall is, is just ignorance, right? It's just the ignorance because we did not know better at that time. That's all we knew. It's that subconscious programming that made us think the shadows on the wall were real. So what I think now is like the Matrix, the movie The Matrix talks about it, the red pill or the blue pill. Once you've made that choice and once you've been offered the red pill and once you have an awakening, there's no going back. I mean, you can dumb yourself down probably with alcohol, drugs, with gambling, all the other things, the vices that really drag us down. But essentially, there's no going back. There's only moving forward. And it's like, I think there's a term in Hinduism called Sardona. And Sardona is the idea of if one boat comes up with the tide, it's not only one boat, it's all the boats. And I believe that not only in the system of mass incarceration, but I believe that with humanity right now, it's like, we all need to start lifting. We all, 
let me say should or not need, but we all would be in a better place if we could help lift each other up and inspire each other and love each other. And we live in a world where not everybody is keen. You know, they'll call you a tree hugger, or they'll call you a hippie, or they'll call you a hipster or all these other terms, you know, of our liberal or uh you're too progressive or all these there's there's all these terms that come out now but the truth and the reality i think if we all just tap into the values and the the principles that most of our religions teach us what are the main things they teach us love your brother forgiveness is key love is key right kindness love your neighbor like you love yourself just all these basic teachings that I think are so prevalent where we are, not only in corrections, but in the world. Absolutely. Stephen, Ken, on this subject, I, I've got so many roads to go down to chat with you about, but let's talk about the awakening. And I heard you tell a story on a podcast. I'm so sorry, I can't remember the name of it. about you coming into prison and reaching out for help and getting a small piece of paper. And so I wondered if you could tell that story maybe as a as a launch position for the awakening, the exchange, what you've created, all of the wonderful things you're doing, and one of which I participated in on the 25th of May. Yeah, it was nice to have you there. It was great to have you there. You'll be back to the next one. Of course. I made friends. Uh, you did make friends. Um in 2006, I had reached a real, I'm going to say a really low point with mental health as a result of substance abuse. And that substance abuse really, really spiraled out of control. And it really affected my life in many different ways. And in 2006, I was in an altercation with somebody that was my friend. He wasn't an enemy. He wasn't somebody I hated. It was somebody that was a dear friend of mine at one point in time. And that person, this was in my house. And yeah, this person, my friend lost his life. And I panicked and made horrible decisions. I was scared to death of the police scared to death of going into prison after movies like Shawshank Redemption. I was a business guy. I'd never been in significant trouble before. And I thought, goodness gracious, this is not good. And really, and from a place of fear and panic, from a place of fight, flight, or freeze, just made really bad choices. And I wound up at the prison and I knew when I got here, I needed to take significant responsibility for the choices that landed me here. Um, I got here. I wanted to move on to my next life. There was, I wanted to sleep. There wasn't, there's was too many hours in the day. I was just at a real, real low point, but I knew I needed to take significant responsibility. So for the first time in my life, because back in 2006, uh, recovery wasn't what it is today. It was really taboo. You were seen as weak if you had dealt with an issue. You know, I dealt with a bunch of guys that used to go to the clubs all the time and uh, stockbrokers and guys that ran mortgage firms and guys that ran hedge funds and so it was a normal thing. During the week, you would work hard. During the weekend, you would party hard. Unfortunately, this guy right here uh, couldn't differentiate the week and the weekend, and it started getting a little bit worse and worse and worse and worse until it got out of control. 
So I wound up in prison and I mean, it was a real, 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 real low point. And the guilt and shame from taking somebody's life and being in a situation where somebody lost their life and the way that I responded to that, that to me was almost the straw that broke the camel's back where I said, I don't want to be here anymore. And, you know, that was a huge, huge mental health challenge for me. So I knew I needed help. And I finally just said, I'm reaching out. And so I think four days of being here, uh, getting out into population, I wrote a letter to the substance abuse department and I laid out my life. I really, for the first time, I really, really opened up. And I had anticipated I would be called by a substance abuse counselor. Somebody would sit down with me. There was this beautiful professional service going on at the prison. They would say, wow, this guy took the time to write four pages. It was actually eight pages because it was front and back. And instead, in the mail, if you can imagine what an envelope looks like, so a little bit smaller than an envelope wide, I would say the length of it was about the same. I got a piece of paper in the mail and it said, when you have two years or less left on your sentence, please reapply to the substance abuse department. There's nothing we can do right now to help you. So a guy coming into the system of mass incarceration, think about this with a 43 year sentence. It's like, what is going on here? Honestly, what is going on? So it was, for me, it really felt like a big kick between the legs and a friend of mine that I had known, uh, one guy I knew in prison, how ironic, you know, that I knew growing up, I played Little League with him. He was here. And I went into his room and he was going to college at the time. And in the corner of his room, I'll never forget this. He lived in uh, 101, pot over by the sink. The sink is where we cook and they have a microwave and all that stuff. And I remember being at the sink and I realized he was in the pod and I went over to see him. This is after getting out of um segregation when you first come in you spend a few weeks on reception status and i looked in the corner of his room and he had all these books and one of them was substance abuse counseling in fact i think it was i think i still have the book it's uh addiction treatment and i'm like what is that and he's like that's uh, what i'm studying right now and i said that's what you're studying right now how are you doing that and he said i'm in the college program i said they have a college program here and he said yeah i go how many people in that he said like six i said six oh my gosh how do i get in he goes it's hard steve but you can try so i knew right then i said can i borrow these books he said yeah so i went through and read those books and he took a whole lot of notes and there were suggestions in the back. It was like different things, uh, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. There was journaling. There was meditation. I'll never forget this. There was AA. There was the 12 steps. There was NA. There was um, smart recovery. There was all recovery, a bunch of different things I had written down. What I wrote down, I said, I need to do all these things. I need to do every, if they're not going to give me the help that I need, I need to find this help and and go to any links to get it. And what I started doing was doing everything that I could find and actually access that was on that. And it started with meeting Bo Lozoff here, which he wrote the book, We're All Doing Time. And I read his book. I got involved with a group called Mindful Meditation and Qigong. 
and started a Qigong and mindful meditation practice based on John Kabat-Zinn's work. The meditation part of it, the Qigong part of it was based on a training that this guy here at the prison had done. So it started there. I got involved with a 12-step program, um, which was really helpful. But education, I think, just the ability, having some purpose and meaning in my life and going to school really felt good. So I didn't get accepted into the program. Let me back up. I applied to the program. And when I applied to the program, they said, you need to show that you've been out of school for a long time. You know, you don't have a high school diploma. You go to GED. You need to... Um, see if this is actually for you. So back then I went through a whole slew of comprehensive exams. I had to take um, college math, which was a preliminary class they taught here at the prison. And then I had to pay for the first two classes myself. And both classes, the first one was health and human services, which I loved. I learned about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I said, oh my God, this is, my life just changed. Read Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl. Bang, my my life just changed. I take, um, go through that class. I get an A. I take college writing with this guy named Garrett Vale, who's an amazing teacher. Uh, I'm like, holy Moses. And he's like, yeah, you you have a, uh, you, you know, you have really a, a, a gift to write. So stick with this. So took that class. And then at that time, Doris had sent people from the Sunshine Lady Foundation up to the prison. She wanted to start another cohort of individuals. And that's when I got involved. And that was 2009. And since then, I've been just on this journey, this journey of learning and growing thanks to that freaking piece of paper that I got in the mail that said, when you have two years left. So my goal, I just want to circle back to that for one second, because yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I I went to school and they force you into this degree. It's a liberal arts degree, and the reason they did that because it's easy for them. They don't have to do a lot of work, like chasing stuff around, and they can push everybody through the same cookie cutter program. But for me, I'm like, no, I'm fighting. I wanted, I want this degree in substance abuse and mental health. That's why I came to school. I didn't come to just get a liberal arts degree. I want to learn about myself. So I fought, fought, fought. Doris approved me going that track. And in 2012, I got involved with a bunch of programs at the university and earned my um, certification in mental health and rehabilitation. I earned a certification in substance abuse and rehabilitation. And then I proposed to the substance abuse department. I shared that same story that I just shared with you about how that felt. The people that gave me that piece of paper and I said, hey, let me start a program, a peer support program. And they said, well, we had something like that in place. And I said, well, let me see the um, criteria. Let me see the the syllabus and let me see the way that you're running this class. And, you know, through that, just started developing a class that really worked for people, that really made sense, that gave people a place to be seen, heard and felt and share their story based on what I felt like I really needed, yeah. but I wasn't getting right. Yeah. And it, it it became it became so successful that group. I mean, we were running. I was running um, that group nine times a week, nine different groups of eight to ten people. And we would graduate. You know, we'd have a mass graduation. All the groups would come together, and 
it was really, really powerful for a long period of time. It really was. A lot of people were changing their lives. I was getting people getting released. I was getting a lot of letters from people that had this experience of being part of that group. And yeah, that, that piece of paper, I, I mean, I give, you know, they say there's a silver lining in every experience. I guess that was the silver lining of that piece of paper. Like it gave me that intrinsic motivation to really want to create opportunities for others. Initially, in hearing that story, Stephen, so soul-crushing to get this piece of paper, like, when you've got two years left. I mean, seriously? I mean, you definitely had two paths to go down. The soul-crushing, I'll rock in a ball and I'll find a way to use again and and go into that cesspool life. Mm -hmm. Or, damn it, if that's all you got for me, I'm going to fix it and change it and do something. That's right. That's right. That's right. And I think, I think that's really where we're at right now. I mean, I think, you know, we'll go to the awakening here in a minute, but I think that is the driving force. It's like, let's say we're in a, I mean, the the story I guess I'll share is let's, let's say we're in a neighborhood and it's like, we know that the neighborhood needs a garden and there's a, there's a space. We have all the vegetables. We have everything we need to grow the garden, but nobody's like taking initiative to like break the ground and like, say hey the garden needs to be over here and it's like but we have all the tools and we have the the know how to do it just nobody's really taken that initiative to do it and the reason why is because there's a local grocery mart if the garden starts it's the the grocery mart's going to lose business so they don't want that garden to start so really i think what it is 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 just having enough care enough compassion having enough love i think it takes a lot of freaking love um yeah, to just see that we're involved in these systems, that's no matter where we are. And I think it's a good freaking lesson for everybody out there in society. We live in these systems where there's these pockets of dysfunction and these, these pockets of things not working very well. And what we do half the time, the homeless guy is on the street. We'll walk right over him and pretend we don't see him sitting there. And it's not because we don't care and we don't have good hearts it's because we really don't see him sitting there yeah for whatever reason it is we don't see that man jesus didn't hang out with the romans (laughs) buddha wasn't hanging out with the king all the time you know goodness gracious yeah uh mother Teresa, she (laughs) wasn't Roaming around, hanging out with the the higher up. She was hanging out and going into the nursing homes, working with the people with the AIDS, working with what people deem the lowest among us. And I think it was Frederick Tolstoy that said, we can judge a civilization by the way we treat their prisoners, right? By the way that civilization treats its prisoners. And it's so true. It's like, you know, I get involved with education. I just want to say this because this is important. I get involved with the education department here and like really had my heart. I'm like, I'm going to go to school for social work. I really love this stuff. I want to help people. Social work is the way to go. So I earned my first bachelor's degree, liberal arts, go back, earn my second bachelor's degree, mental health and human services. And I say, all right, I'm going to earn this, um, get a master's degree. And I start looking at social services and I read biology of belief. I read, I read Dr. Gabriel Mate's book, excuse me, in the realm of hungry ghosts first. And in that book, I learned about Dr. Bruce Lipton's work and read biology of belief. 
Ironically enough, I get turned on to Dr. Ellen Langer, who wrote Mindfulness on Becoming an Artist and uh, Martin Sleekman's book, Flourish. And I, I started saying to myself, the insurance companies, they need us and the doctors, right? They need us to be sick. They need to label us these labels. And these labels allow us to go back to the doctor's office every X amount of days. And because we're going back to the doctor's office every X amount of days, we're getting prescribed something usually, an antidepressant, an anti-anxiety pill, a pill for this, a pill for that, a pill for that. And social and a lot of social work is labeling. It's like this person has mental health, this person has this, this person has this. And I just felt really exhausted with the idea of labeling and putting stigma on people, perpetuating the ideology that we're broken. It really bugs me. It's like, we're not broken. So I think what the aha moment was for me, it was realizing like, man, people in here have a lot of strengths. I think I was walking by the art room that day and then I had left hospice. I was serving for the Maine State Prison hospice team up there with a dear friend of mine who just recently passed, uh, Bobby Paison. And Bobby was this guy with just unbelievable strengths and talents. He could pick up a guitar. He could play any song. He could read a book and tell you, like, he could recite the book to you. He, we did Spanish. I mean, when we studied Spanish together, this guy picked it up just like that. Anything and everything. I mean, I'm not giving him justice to what he could and couldn't do, but this man was a Shavant. He really was. He was uh, just absolutely and positively amazing. And I remember thinking to myself back then, I'm like, I do not want to put labels on people. I don't want to drag people down anymore. I want to lift people up. And the psychology of possibility, Dr. Ellen Langer had done had done this research and what she did these chambermaids these chambermaids were all out of they were out of whack their health was screwed up their blood pressure was up their um their respiratory wasn't good their you know their 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 different levels in their blood were screwed up and what she did is she observed these chambermaids which she realized like Holy Moses, what they're doing, they're, they're changing the, the comforters, they're washing the walls, they're cleaning the floors. She said, this is like aerobics. So she started correlating the movements that they would do when they were cleaning up the, the hotel room or the uh, place, whatever it is. She would equate these moves to aerobics. And she went in, she took a group of these women and she said, hey, look, I don't want you to change up anything. Don't quit smoking. Don't change your diet. But I want to show you this. Your job is just like you're doing aerobics all day long. You are one of the healthiest people out there. The, your movements, the way you're moving, the way that you are healthy. And she planted the seed in their head. So within a couple of weeks, their blood pressure went down. They lost weight. They started feeling healthier. They started feeling more joyous. And I said, this has got to be a freaking fluke. This is she did the same kind of research in a monastery. She took older gentlemen that were in their 60s, 70s, 80s. These Most of them were using the walkers and the canes, and they were bent over, and their fingers were all arthritic. And 
she picked these men up. She she said, I want to do a some research. And these men volunteered, women. And she picked them up and brought them to a monastery. And she said, for this week, she gave them instructions on the, on the bus before they get off. She said, I want you to act like you did when you were young. They set this monastery up with old Time Life magazines. They set it up with old music, old movies, um, things that these gentlemen and ladies had when they were younger. And even when they got off the bus, like I think some of them expected like their suitcases to be dragged in. She said, no, no, no. I think she that was her first decision. She said, you're going to move that in there yourself. What was miraculous after a week or two weeks, they stood up taller. Their fingers got longer. The arthritis healed up. They believed they were younger. The biology of belief. They believed they were younger. They believed they were healthier. And they got younger and healthier. So that concept, to me, it was like, we need to teach people. What if we started teaching people they are better than the worst choice they've ever made? What if we started teaching them they are their strengths? They're not the abuse they went through. They're not the harm. They're not the um, adverse childhood experience. They're not the crime that they committed. Instead, they are a beautiful human being that has the ability to be loved, that they are loved, that they have these strengths and they're going to flourish at some point in time. They have people that believe in them, like the lady that did hospice here at the Maine State Prison believed in us. They have love and I was like so turned on by that. I said, you know what? And I started looking at degrees in positive psychology. And I said, holy Moses, I'm going to get a master's degree for study and forgiveness, self-care for well-being. Are you kidding me right now? And yeah, that was my route. So I decided, you know, I'm not going to go for social work. I'm going to go for positive psychology. I'm going to learn more about these healing modalities that we could introduce into the prison. And now here we are, we just graduated with a 4.0, right? From a, from a maximum security prison, from a cell, from a cell, busted my butt. And I think the beauty of that is now there's other guys here at the prison stepping up into graduate degree programs. There's other guys that are getting motivated and inspired and encouraged to do the work. There's a lot of guys in the prison that will come out of the blue and say, hey, they kid around and say, hey, Dr. Clark. And I laugh. I said, not yet. But it's nice that people are taking notice because they're becoming motivated and they're becoming inspired to foster their strengths. We're not doing justice with each other by putting labels on each other, by prescribing each other pills, by taking this real Western approach to healing, which in today's world, it's like, Pills. That's what you need is pills. Pills will fix you. Pills will fix you. No, go out in the garden. Why don't you do this? Let me prescribe you uh, some greens, um, some fruits, and three hours out in the garden. Take your shoes off too. Connect with the earth. In prison, you know, what I'm seeing is when you believe in somebody, when you see them for more than the worst choice they've ever made, when you give them love, when you champion them, when you coach them and allow them to find their own solutions, just like those chambermaids or those gentlemen dropped off to the monastery, they become resilient, beautiful human beings. And there's so much, and to go back to that uh, Bobby Paisan that passed away, the talent in here is 
phenomenal. And I think if really like utilizing that lived experience, if we all gather around each other and we all lifted each other up, we could take that collective consciousness to the broader society, but we could also heal this system. And what I mean by heal it is really we could create a new system. Yeah. God bless you, Stephen. Out of the blue, here's a question. What does bravery mean to you? Because we're breaking brave. Just shoot from the gut here. I don't need anything fancy. In your gut, what does bravery mean to you, Stephen? For me, bravery means the ability to do what is right. It's the ability to stand firm and to keep moving, even though it's not always the easiest thing to do. Bravery is standing in my values and not swaying from my values. Bravery is being told no, being looked at in the face, being told I would never, ever, ever do a PhD program here at this prison and keep moving forward. Bravery is staying the course even when it is and it does not look like there is a door that's going to open, just believing and keeping the faith. And, and yeah, just keeping keeping my feet. For me, it's just keeping the course in the face of all the adversity, all the challenges, all the barriers that are thrown up. And that's a great question, by the way. It means something different to every human being on the planet, I believe. And it's really fascinating to me to hear... It's what you feel inside your heart and in your gut. And so thank you for that. So let could we now go to the awakening, please? Um, because we've referred to it and and I participated in an online exchange. And and I'd like the world to understand what this is. I'd also use this as an absolute call out to you, Stephen, to say, how can we help you? How can we support you? How can we make this change that you are making? Let's talk about the exchange, the awakening, and how can the world help you, support you, believe in what you're doing? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, the master's degree, I I started learning a lot about, like I said, positive psychology and coaching. I put together a coaching program for the system, and I was invited to share that, my thesis and my capstone with a broad audience of people. And What happened in doing so was I got introduced to a beautiful man named David Sivit, this beautiful woman named Krista Bremer, and they ran an online exchange. I didn't even know what exchange meant. And I'm part of a mindfulness organization called Unified Mindfulness with this beautiful man named Shinsen Young. And just synergies work out and synchronicities are always in play and the universe is always working in our favor. I get invited to do my capstone on the Glen Exchange. I get an email from Unified Mindfulness that they're doing a training on exchanges. And I said, I thought it was all related, had no idea. I meet this beautiful guy named, there's a lot of beautiful people involved here named John Berghoff, who runs Exchange Approach and Exchange Community. So I go through this training, this two-hour training that I leave feeling energized, charged, uplifted. I said, oh my gosh, this is something special and something that I want to do. So take that two-hour training, 
implemented into the capstone, present the capstone. 70 people showed up for the capstone. And the feedback was, whatever you just did, you need to keep doing that because we've been to all these online meetings. We felt burnout. These online meetings, it's people just talking at us. And finally, this is a space where we can come together and we can meet and talk and we can share and there's music and we feel uplifted. And that's how Awakening Exchange was born um, through that presentation to the capstone. And what I realized is we really needed a space. I mean, if you think of, we have a, a, a vast uncharted landscape of human experiences where the shadows of incarceration loom large. The light of hope is always flickering, but it flickers ever so faintly. And amidst the terrain, there's an oasis. And that oasis is the awakening. And really, it's a sanctuary where seeds of transformation are nurtured. And I would say the barren soil of injustice is cultivated into a thriving garden of healing and restoration. And somebody would say, what does that even mean, Stephen? Well, I would say what that means is what we have done is we have created an online exchange where people can come together and people that have been in prison, people that are in prison, people that work in the system of mass incarceration, people that have loved ones incarcerated. And every month we come together to foster conversations about healing, about connection, about love. And really, the awakening is a radiant sunrise um, casting its golden rays on the walls of confinement. And it's really, I believe, it's illuminating paths of redemption and growth and showing the broader society what is possible. And really, it's a sympathy of voices. Um, and I think everybody is coming forward with resilience and determination, harmonizing to create a melody of collective empowerment. And I think that's really unique because you got somebody that is running this thing. You know, you have a lot of people out in society that try to do online meetings or try to do these groups. And you have a guy from his prison cell that's bringing together between 30 and 300 people every single month. And the conversations are so meaningful. There's so there's so much vulnerability. It's like my conversations with Billy Anderson. Mm -hmm. um, that's why him and I get along so well because we can set and we just go deep. We go so deep and we don't put our guards up. We just let our guards down and we let it all come out. And I I, I think like um, a compass guiding lost souls, the awakening offers direction and purpose pointing to a new horizon of possibility within the field of um, prisons and corrections. Really, it's a bridge connecting hearts and minds, dissolving boundaries that separate us, right? Because there's a lot of boundaries that separate us and it forges a unified front against the chains of really an unjust system. So what we're doing is we're mindfully coming together. We're not fighting the system. We're fostering these conversations, utilizing 
what David Cooper Ryder has coined appreciative inquiry and just asking questions where people can come together and talk with one another. So we have people, I think you met the, you were there when uh, the ladies from Africa spoke. Yes. So we have people from Africa. We have people from Sweden. We have people from the UK. We have people from Canada. Yes. We, we have <laughs> we have a really beautiful coach from Mexico that comes in that's into plant medicine, which I think is a really cool thing. Um, it was amazing experience, Stephen. I, absolutely. I listened. I watched, and then I was in a breakout room with a couple of gentlemen one who was incarcerated in Florida and then worked for the system and is now a re-entry coach. So the lived experience like you that he has, he's u- using to help the other prisoners who are allowed finally to re-enter society to help them to do that. Because one of the things that I learned was how completely wrong the re-entry process is in terms of, I mean, he was he was talking about, okay, so if you have to go and see your parole officer, that has to be between nine and five. You don't have a car because you can't afford a car because the job you've got is not really a living wage. And so how do you get to see your parole officer when you have to take a bus to go there? But you also have to be at work between nine and five and the parole officer is only available between nine and five. So you're either leaving work because you haven't told them 100% what's going on, or you're you're not showing up for the parole officer, and then you're increasing your chances that you're going to end up back inside the system you so desperately wanted to leave. And that was one example where there were hundreds of, well, how do you get a job with a living wage? How do you get out of a transition house when nobody wants to talk to you and you're labeled, 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 and this label is hung around your neck like some visible thing, like some albatross, that's everything is set up for you to end up with these high rates of recidivism because it's impossible to navigate. That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that, that's really, thank you for bringing that up, by the way. That's really powerful and interesting. And what we're talking about is re-entry, right? Yeah. And we're talking about re-entry back into society. And that's part of what we're trying to show and trying to uh, lean into is re-entry begins the first day of somebody's incarceration. My re-entry began when I started the college program. My re-entry began when I started getting certified in a bunch of different things or when I started volunteering. Re-entry for me is right here with you formulating this connection and having friends in my life that are accountable, valuable, that are people that I want to, and I'm striving to be. These are some of the conversations that we have and some of the conversations that come up. We do a lot of exercises and I think um, working together, we, I believe in um, what they call Indra's web. Indra's web is a spider web. Those, that's where all of our minds are. So we're all drops of water on this spider web. And way up there in Canada, if you have ideas or thoughts or you're sending out an energy into the universe, eventually that hits me. It affects me. It's like prayer and meditation. I've done this research with plants. You pray beside a plant or you pray for a plant. The plant actually flourishes and does better. Yes, it does. So 
I believe this is just kind of my thesis. I believe by bringing people together and fostering this conversation about what is possible with healing, not fighting. I don't want to fight. I don't think fighting anything is where we need to be. But co-creating together, remember that creativity, we're out of the reactivity now, collectively. We're formulating new ideas creatively, collectively. And in doing that, what we're doing is creating a social contagion. And I believe in the Bigfoot effect in 1967 when those two gentlemen filmed Bigfoot in California. I mean, Bigfoot was talked about a little bit by our native people, but it was Bigfoot was not mainstream. 1967, when they shot that video and that video went out, now they have cryptozoology for PhD programs and colleges. People are actually studying Bigfoot and there's more and more sightings of Bigfoot all over the place. Point being is you take an idea of healing prisons, right? That's the Bigfoot effect. That's the Bigfoot. And somebody would say, a guy in his prison cell doing a podcast with you, you are crazy. There's no such thing. <laughs> and laugh at you a little bit. And you're like, well, hold on a second. Give me a minute. Let me get this thing edited because I'm actually going to listen. Let you listen to the call. This conversation becomes the Bigfoot. Next thing you know, there's more and more people within their prison cells having the same conversation about their healing and their transformation. Because that is the contagion that we are spreading collectively. So I think collaboratively coming up with these ideas, these solutions of healing, what we're really doing is so much good in the world. In the awakening, I got to tell you, it's been really a profound turning point in my life. Um, the community is transformative. The community has breathed, I say, a new level of healing, justice, and the power of connection that Indra's web, that idea of connecting with one another. That power of connection within and itself is freaking huge. I had a guy on a couple months ago, David DeRocher. He's running a program out of Utah that has a 96% non-recidivism rate. So... In most cases, if, if they stay the full four years, nobody's ever returned to prison. That program is amazing. And that's one of the things I'm trying to get the contagion out. We found a program out of all the research I've done in my uh, uh, my master's degree, my graduate studies. His program was the very best program I found in the world. So I've tried to amplify that and get the contagion of that out there. And I would say it's more, the awakening is more too than if anybody's listening to this and interested it's more than just an online um, platform. It's really a beacon of hope. Yes. It is a, it's a sanctuary for those who seek change and are committed to creating a more equitable and compassionate world. It's a space where diverse voices come together, sharing experiences, wisdom, and collective action. And I'd say in the world, words of Angela Davis... Prisons do not disappear social problems. They disappear human beings. Yeah. Prisons do not disappear social problems. They disappear human beings. And the awakening stands as a counterforce, reminding us of the inherent worth and potential for growth within every individual, regardless of their past mistakes. Because nobody wants to wear a scarlet letter. 
That does not feel good. It really doesn't. I just went through that. We, um, I served on the debate team here. We, we were recently invited a few of us onto a debate team to debate against Wake Forest, who were the three-time national champions for debate. They beat schools like MIT, Harvard, all the big name um, schools out there. So they were carrying the debate champion, um, the, the the crown, let's say. So we went into debate against life without the possibility of parole, and we worked together for, I'd say, three months. We got together twice a week. We did a lot of research and dove deep into this issue about parole, which was really a fitting time because Maine is talking about bringing back parole at the same time. So it was really an honor, and it was a lot of the same research that myself and a couple individuals that have been like deep into so we debated. We ended up beating Wake Forest. It was a pretty close debate. And I want to share this with you because I think this is so freaking important. I had this reporter get in touch with me and she said, Stephen, we are so excited to share this story. You guys beat Wake Forest. Um, parole's and thing going on here in Maine right now. We'd like to come up and do a story on this and do a story on you. We heard that you're starting a PhD and I said, yeah, well, that's a really, that's a story that I'd really like to put out there. I've been in your paper before, and what they did was really focused on the crimes. That does not do us any justice. No, 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 Mr. Clark, we are going to put a story out about parole. And so the story came out a couple of weeks ago, and it was about our crimes. It had nothing, it was very little focus on that was what you, any logical person that read that paper, that's what it would get, they would get from it. It was like, the scarlet letter being hit with that freaking scarlet letter. And it didn't feel good. It really made me feel quite frankly, like shit. There's your label. There's your label. There's a label. And she lied to you. And and she lied to you. I mean, I want to talk about lied. your PhD. I want to talk about your success on the debate team, beating one of the, the top schools in the That's United right. States of America. But no, when it comes out, it's back to labeling. Um, but what it taught me, it's like human, it's a human condition, right? Um, but yeah. it's not, it's so unevolved. We're at a place right now that we're making changes in this system. 18 years ago, my victim's mother said and visits me. She's working on, she's been working diligently to have me released from this place. She has been coming up here to visit me for the past 18 years. She's a dear friend of mine. Felicity Farrell. That's right. And, and bless her for forgiveness and bless her for, I think that story is just, it says it all. That's right. That's right. That's right. So that's what the story is. It's not a story of, it's like, at what point in time can I ask? It's like, it's like, ho'oponopono. Thank you. I love you. Forgive me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And it's like, please just see me and see me. In 2006, I am not that guy any longer. I'm not. I'm really not that person any longer. I did not know how to reach out for help. I was scared. I was fearful. I was afraid. See my heart and see my soul and see the person that I've become. Spend some time with me. Sit down and have a conversation. Get to know me a little bit. Don't judge me. It's like... You're not going to move forward in life like that. And it's like how for all of us that are in prison, I think it's important. You don't need to forget 
but you need to forgive and you can't keep carrying that. It's not healthy. And that, that article wasn't good for Felicity. That's not a positive article for her. That re- re-traumatizes the victims as well. So well, the reality is this. We're still pushing forward. We're still showing people that change is possible. And we're doing that at the core. So back to the awakening. The awakening is really about dismantling exactly what we were just talking about and dismantling the walls of isolation and fostering a new sense of belonging for all of us. It is a gathering place where people with lived experience, advocates, scholars, and change makers come together. They converge and they ignite conversations and collaborations that actually transcend boundaries. Mm-hmm. And that's freak that's freaking amazing. And through this exchange as well, I just I think this is a really important and relevant point. I have witnessed the power of connection and solidarity. I really have witnessed that. And I think as Brian Stevenson eloquently puts it, proximity has the power to transform. Proximity has the power to transform. By coming together, we are able to challenge the narratives that perpetuate harm and envision a future rooted in restorative and transformative justice, not putting scarlet letters on people. That's what I think is freaking amazing. And the awakening, I'd love for everybody listening to this to come just to check it out. At least we offer a multitude of resources, discussions and events that tackle pressing issues such as prison reform, restorative justice, re-entry support, um, and community building. We do our very best to empower individuals to become change agents themselves. We are working with Columbia University and several life coaches right now, teaming them up with people in the exchange to get that level of consciousness little bit higher and higher. And I think I found um, solace in the awakening's commitment to healing both individually and collectively. Um, Michelle Alexander, who wrote the new Jim Crow, she said, we are all implicated when we allow other people to be mistreated. And that's what I would encourage people. Just think of this. People We are locking human beings up and putting human beings in a six by seven room for up to 24 hours a day. We're feeding them garbage. Their diet's horrible. We're just pumping medications into them. We're not giving them the love and support that they need. And this is going around, this is going on across our country. Imagine if everybody in the world just like spent one hour with a prisoner, with somebody that was incarcerated, the good that that would do. Out of sight, out of mind. Nursing homes are the same way. Our aging population, people that are sick, we don't take care of our family members at home anymore. We put them in the hospital. And it's like, oh my God, who's going to take care of mom this week? She's sick. I can't get over there. That's the freaking mindset that we have as a, as a country. And it's like men and women that are in prison, they were hurt. I'm telling you this. And I say this. People are victims that were in prison. I'm not justifying 
I'm not justifying behavior at all. What I'm doing is trying to share there's a why yes. behind the behavior. And yes. I'm not saying all cases either, because I know a guy here, he was driving and he went to play golf, left from playing golf, got in a car accident, somebody got hurt. I know a woman in California, she was a school teacher, uh, wealthy lady, had a couple glasses of wine, ended up killing somebody, and she's in prison for 12 years. So you never know what's around the corner either. Everybody's like, oh, that would never happen to me. That would never, ever happen to me. And nobody knows it until it happens to you. And I love that quote by Michelle Alexander because we're all implicated when we allow other people to be mistreated. The the prisons, there's still people on horses with shotguns roaming around as somebody picks cotton for 25 cents an hour. We are letting people work for 25 cents an hour. The prison industrial complex is their pockets are getting fatter and fatter and fatter. Meanwhile, that guy picking the cotton for 25 cents an hour, he's still got kiddos that he needs to take care of. He's still got fines and restitution that he has to pay. He still needs a place to go when he gets out of prison. He should be able to have some kind of savings. He should be able to put something together for himself. And there's enough jobs right now in the United States. There's enough jobs around where prison, you know, and I say this with sincerity. I mean, we could honestly work with our prisons for agriculture. We could put our prisoners in the field and pay them a a reasonable wage. Yep. Instead, we have Victoria's Secrets. We have Abbott Laboratories. We have these big, big corporations utilizing the prison industrial complex for work. Even Elon Musk is guilty of this for some of his uh, solar stuff. They've utilized federal prisons and paid these people like five bucks, uh, five bucks, 50 cents an hour to do the work. All that is doing is that is freaking taking advantage of people. Absolutely. So the prison industrial complex, they'll do these jobs here in the United States at these privatized prisons because it's cheaper than going to Mexico. It's cheaper than going to China. And it's wrong. Before we wrap, Stephen, what would you like to say to the world, Stephen? conscious of your time. Thank you so much. What do you want the world to know? No pressure. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. (laughs) No pressure at all, right? Um, Well, first off, I want to just say thank you for this beautiful opportunity to be seen, heard, and felt, and to share some of my story. I don't even know if we even scratched the surface or we dove deep enough. I have faith that we went exactly where we were supposed to go. What I would like the world to know is the awakening exchanges out there. If you want to learn more about criminal justice and prison reform, the awakening, it's not just an exchange of ideas. It's a catalyst for action um, and invites us to step beyond critique and actively engage in work of reshaping our societies. I invite you to come through partnerships with organizations like Jobs for the Future and insights shared by remarkable individuals like our friend Cardell Sims that is traveling to 100 prisons. We gain knowledge and inspiration. And joining the Awakening Exchange means embarking on a journey of transformation, a journey where we can move from silence to advocacy, from division to unity, from despair to hope. Together, we can create a world where justice is restorative, prisons are rehabilitative, and communities are truly inclusive, 
truly, truly inclusive, please give the awakening a chance. Please let the awakening be a destination or be a stopping point for you or be part of your journey. We invite you to participate. We invite you to show up to listen. We invite you to be part of that collective consciousness that Indra's web. One thing I do want you to know is I cannot do this alone. I am in my prison cell. This is not an easy, easy journey. This has been very challenging at times. The love and friendships that I have with folks like yourself, with others in the community, the mentorship, the coaching, the love, the kindness that I have in my life, that is why I am where I am. I've been shown a lot of love. I would just encourage everybody on this call to try to talk to somebody in prison, have that conversation, learn what prisons are, learn what's going on. Don't pretend like it's not an issue that exists because it does exist. And the person that you're pretending that doesn't exist could be the person that's living next door to you pretty soon. Absolutely. We can change the recidivism rate from 77% and bring it down to 20, 25% the same way Norway has done. If we implement models that are more holistic, kind, and healing, that foster more gardens, a place for people to play in the dirt, a place for people to connect. And then finally, we've said it before, but I'll say it again. We are all better than the worst choice we've ever made, every single one of us. Please join in with me and others in creating this Bigfoot effect with the system of mass incarceration. Please share love to those that need it most. And believe me, being in a, a six by eight cell for a long period of time, I call it the yogi cave. I had needed love. I, I pretended I didn't need it, but I had needed love for a long, long period of time. And now that love is in my life, it has really opened up my mind, my heart, and my spirit. And that's transformative in and of itself. Thank you. I love you. Forgive me. And I am sorry. Thank you. I love you. Forgive me. And I am sorry. Thanks so much for listening to Breaking Brave. For updates between episodes, please visit my website, MarilynBarefoot.com. You can also find me at Marilyn Barefoot. That's it for today. See you next time.